to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Welcome back to Everyday Theology. With me is a guest who comes and goes. Um, often, uh, I hate to say it this way, but it, it is true. Sometimes I'm like, I don't, I need, I need to talk to someone, and so I just text Rick. That doesn't mean about the podcast. That actually just means in general. I'm like, I, I thought of an idea, and it's 9 p.m. And who else am I going to text at 9 p.m. except for Rick? Right. So <laughs> that's right. Uh, Rick um, is an associate professor of Old Testament at Assemblies of God Theological Seminary. Um, Rick and I met at Society for Pentecostal Studies years ago now, um, and my very first kind of, or my second time ever seeing him, I just remember saying, what up, old bald head? And I don't know why I said that, <laughs> as if like we were old friends. <laughs> yeah. yeah, probably having just met probably in the hallway or something even. Yeah. Something, but you laughed and I said, okay, we can be friends then, I yes. guess. <laughs> So, Rick, thanks for thanks for jumping on with me, man. Yeah, always. Um, all right. So, Rick, when I was texting you about, okay, I want to, you know, we, we've been going through a lot of things with the podcast. Actually, we've kind of had a couple on mysticism, kind of mining that vein, so to speak, for a bit. And, you know, one of the things that I find curious is that oftentimes we spend so much time in, whether it's theological studies or New Testament, the Old Testament often gets kind of left behind. And mm, right. you know, according to one Atlanta area pastor, maybe it was time to <laughs> unhitch our wagon from the right. Old Testament. Of course, he's walked that statement back now. But, you know, rather than it, but his point was, it's too hard to understand, and we don't really need it. So why? Right? And he might you know, have said something about pastors needing it and so on and so forth. But you, you know, the, the average everyday person, you know, you can unhitch your wagon and, you know, I'm, I'm uncomfortable <laughs> with yeah, that. Yeah, I'm beyond uncomfortable with it, yeah. Right? But I think part of that is just because his point was, and it, his point is true, is valid, I think, the Old Testament's tough, right? Like, it's it's a tough thing to grasp. It's a tough... There's a lot of cultic practices and cultic religion, and it doesn't line up very well with some of the things we see from Christ, at least on surface level. So... Today, I just ask Rick, because again, it's not even my focus, right? I read papers and books here and there, but you know, it's not my focus. So I just said, Rick, teach me. And so (laughs) this podcast is essentially Rick telling me how dumb I am and how little I know of the Old Testament. You're reaching pretty low, calling me out, but send me out to the field, coach. Everyone else was booked. Sorry. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. So I'm going to just kind of, I've said that piece about the Old Testament being tough, and I don't know if you have any thoughts there, but I'm just throwing it out to you, you know, teach teach me. Tell me some things that maybe I don't know. Help us start to maybe kind of just take a journey through some Old Testament text and really maybe some key ones that we've messed up a lot or whatever it is that you're thinking, you know what, here's what people need to hear about the Old Testament today. That's a really big question, by the way. Yeah, it's, it's a massive <laughs> questions, massive questions. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, we we not only have um, 
historical distance from the Old Testament, much further historical distance than, than our New Testament text, but an imaginary, um, as if the New Testament is closer to us uh, religiously or theologically. Uh, maybe it is, maybe it's not. Um, some of that, some of that depends on our our um, our own historical location or cultural locations, right? Right. So, so for I, I work for a number of schools globally, um, besides AGTS, just stateside. So I'm regularly engaging students across Asia, Africa, um, Latin America, and I find that the worldview and cultural settings are actually nearer, mm. uh, even Old Testament contexts at times. Yeah. Then um, the one we tend to find stateside, uh, for example. So, right. So bridging the gaps a little different. And in some ways, actually, some of my students overseas find it difficult only because they've been educated by Americans. Oh, right. And as if course. we've created these boundaries, like, well, we're so different. Like, no, if the Americans teaching you had just considered your culture, um, they, they might have realized there were actually more connections than initially right. than from their own background. So. Right. It's like we've reenculturated folks to be more distant from the Old Testament. Hmm. So, do you? Do you, but, you I know. mean, I'm already going to ask a question because yeah. that's fascinating, right? Do you have an example of kind of a time that that's happened, or you know, why you would kind of? Because that's very fascinating to me, right? I mean, I've I've taught in Africa and I've taught in other places as well, and but again, I'm I teach different subjects, so when you're going through theology, right. it's a little bit easier to kind of I don't want to say easier, but it's a little bit easier, I think, in theological disciplines to be mindful of context. It can also be easy to be not be mindful of it clearly, but, you know, allowing some of that context to speak more into theological discipline. But the way that we often do our hermeneutics or our biblical studies, maybe, maybe not. So I don't know. I'm just, I'm just very curious as to an example yeah. of. of yeah. That. Quick, easy example. It even came up just within the last few weeks. Um, the the idea of the gods Yahweh and the gods right yeah um, our God talk is very westernized and almost sometimes radically monotheistic hmm. um, not even really Trinitarian monotheistic yeah. but almost radically monotheistic um, and then we we read that back into the context of the scripture for example, so that um, we, we hear the Old Testament and the New Testament as, as if it's written in and is arguing for a monotheistic worldview. So we'll use the language. We'll just say God. Right. Which fits much better. New Testament usage, the os, right? Um, the, the just simplistic God, um, except for every time, basically, that is quoting from the Old Testament in the right. New Testament. Right. But none of them exist in a world that is believed to be unpopulated by deities or other gods or the divine realm. Right. Right. Uh, every street corner feels like has another God. Uh, they're everywhere. And there are greater gods and lesser gods. So they're divine beings. And most of my students, uh, particularly in Asia, find themselves in context exactly like that. Right. Um, but in some ways they have, they have been sort of generically, uh, monotheized so that they they it's as if they can't hear the texts of scripture in a world much nearer their own context hmm. where there are shrines everywhere right. to this buddha to that buddha to this spirit to that spirit right 
um, a world even populated by spirits of ancestors or so we, we, we get this sense though if we if we allow the texts of the old testament to speak for themselves it's a classic example the shema this is this is the primary mm-hmm. confession of israel right hero right. israel the lord of god the lord is one and so we in our context tend to say ah one there is only one god there's no other gods however this is all embedded within the environment of the lord is one in comparison to what and right our translation even is, is difficult so the ten commandments which have just preceded this do not make idols of any other gods right you don't worship any other gods it's not no other gods exist stop yeah. pretending they do they just don't no it's don't worship them right and i like i like i mean pete ends talks about this right this idea of monolatry right like yeah it's, it's not so much that there wasn't other gods but there's only this one that you should worship i think his example that i remember hearing from him was like to to be a monotheist would be to say like i bank at i don't know bank of america and to be a a mono bankist i don't know what word to put there (laughs) but right would be to to deny that any other banks actually exist completely right where to be this kind of like idea of monolatry would say, well, there are other banks, right? There's Capital One and there's Wells Fargo and there's Chase. And, but my bank is the best bank. And this is the only bank that you should bank at, right? And it kind of helps maybe, I don't think it's a perfect example, but kind of helps recognize maybe some of that you should have no other gods before me kind of like, right. it's not saying- They just don't compare. Right. It's It's fascinating to not say there are no other gods but me. Right. As much as- you should not put right, right, and so we'll even hear the later uh, later Old Testament language that develops in Isaiah, that the gods are uh, nothing. Well, we'll hear that as oh, well they're not real. Well, the claim of they're nothing is they just amount to nothing, and they're coming to nothing. So don't yeah. be like them, right? You're yeah. identifying with with gods that really they're not speaking, they're not seeing. Um, so stop it. You will become as they are. It's fascinating because, I mean, I I think both of us would clearly be like, well, we do believe that there is one God in a Trinitarian. Absolutely. Right. Model. But it's it's kind of fascinating. and, and, And this is maybe me quickly, too quickly theologizing, but kind of taking this when we deny that other gods exist. Right. We are so quick to. um, What's the right way to put this? If, if that God doesn't exist, I don't have to worry about that God or my my potential worship of that God because it just doesn't exist, right? And, I, you know, I think of I think of kind of what we do, uh, you know, a, a big thing in the church right now, right, is that so much the church seems to be in our evangelical Western world kind of following after the, the God of mammon, right? Power, right. money, influence space, size, dollars, whatever, whatever it is. Right. But if we just ignore mammon and just say, well, man, that's not a real God. We don't even recognize that the times that we are kind of worshiping at the altar of mammon by saying, what's the most important thing? How many people, how much tithes, how much, you know, all the things that we often, um, kind of judge our churches on. Are they successful? Are they not? Well, how many people, right? Like, 
How many people did you have saved in your church on? Like we kind of use those boundaries, but when we when we don't believe that mammon exists, well, we can't worship mammon because mammon doesn't exist. Does that make sense at all? Right, right. Yeah, because we're we are worshiping things that we think exist, even if um, they're at the periphery. Right. right? Somehow right. it matters for the now, for what I need or what have you. Yeah. So almost in that kind of view, when you when you not that again, not that we have that view, but when you kind of have that view, you're, you're more, I don't know, aware, right. Of the potential of the worship of other gods. Yeah. Because yeah. you're, you're, you, you don't just kind of like, ah, there, there's nothing there. So I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. It's interesting when I, when I hear uh, folks in the church talk about idolatry, for example, they will regularly talk about it as if, well, you know, we're not supposed to replace God with other things, which is true. Um, but the commandment is a little bit more intense than that. Um, it actually means don't even put anything alongside, hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, and quite frankly, um, we have plenty of Asherahs to join to our Yahweh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Anyways, so our, our probably our greater sin isn't even replacing what we imagine in our own minds as the place of God. But putting anything else sort of in that divine space that um, yeah. that begins to to fill it in, if you will, yeah. fill in gaps. Yeah, I like that. I think that that makes a lot of sense. I think you know, RC. Look at that. You're already you're already teaching me, Rick. <laughs> Quickly making my my wheels turn yeah. by even just talking about context. We haven't even gotten into any passages yet. Well, I mean, I guess we have a little bit, but yeah, yeah. If I if I make uh, th this would make a whole bunch of trouble. So I, I don't know if you would want me to say what I'm about to say. Oh, make all the trouble in the world, man. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I've been reflecting on this. A couple of my classes um, dealing with various types of text ideas. Um, for instance, teaching a freshman course that, that deals with um, hidden worldviews. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's more of a general education one. But one of the ones we talk about is nationalism. And I know uh, in the church, we like to talk about mammon or money as being a god. Yes, it, it certainly can steal our heart. Right. Whether, whether we should refer to it as a god or not, it steals our heart, our affections, our time, right. our energies, right? Our, our thoughts, our worries. Um, but more, a bit more radical is, um, you know, uh, all ancient peoples had some sort of being that represented their God, right? Some sort right. of image. And we do. Um, we have an animal. And that animal is held high above our symbol. And uh, mm. that animal is to be higher than all other flags which wave beside it by law. And when the music plays, you are mandated to stand. Woe to those who would kneel or who would sit or not swear allegiance. Mm -hmm. Um we we come if we have anything that functions as uh, similarly to ancient near eastern practices of idolatry it would be that symbol that we find everywhere you drive down the road you don't have to go very far it's usually seen flying in the wind and it's us we're actually worshiping ourselves our own ideal so let me let me just be very clear yeah you hate america <laughs> definitely not <laughs> right yeah right <laughs> yeah but it, it is it is fascinating how something something good something that is a gift can be turned to uh to an idol yeah 
right? Um, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, right? He has created it all. Like this is the confession of Solomon when he builds a house for the Lord in First right. Kings 8. Lord, we know you actually don't need this building. Like you made everything. And yet we turn the good, the beautiful, the true into gods and into idols, into things that, you know, we, we say, well, we don't, we don't worship the flag. Fair enough, but there's nowhere else that I go and am required to place my hand over my heart right. and pledge my very existence in faithfulness to this thing. I mean, I, I did that, you know, when I think I pledged to my wife once in front of a public audience, but I don't do it again and again and again in such public ways, right, that, that is right. mandated. It's rather fascinating. In private, um, yeah, maybe familial, right? Yeah, yeah, but not in this kind of public setting. Of, yeah, it's it's rather fascinating, right. and and I just think, boy, that's um, it's a public display of faithfulness to to this image, which represents an ideal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really tough. I think that that kind of you know, and and I've had him on the podcast before, Matthew Bates, and he mm, he right. has his idea of salvation by allegiance alone, which. I'm not against, I think is, I think it's an interesting concept. It's really just his definition of faith that I think ultimately falters, but, but it is whatever this allegiance thing, allegiance thing is, I mean, that's definitely there, right? This, there's this allegiance portion to this idea of the kingdom of God, a relationality with God. It becomes really tough. And this is now, this is a really tough conversation. Not even about the Old Testament, but I love <laughs> but that you is. you lob yeah. the grenade. So here we the, are. The right? reason I lob that there is because Daniel is often in my mind as yeah. a book all about how do you faithfully live in the midst of the kingdoms of this world in exile. Daniel's yeah. all about that. It's a book of wise living. It's less of, like we want to make it about prophetic future stuff. It addresses issues, but the the primary focus of the book is how do you live as a wise person in the midst of empire, as, as a, someone in exile, someone away. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think, you know, so much of Romans, I mean, I'm going now to the other side of things, right? But so much of Romans is that same thing, right? You're living in this kingdom that demands that you claim allegiance to that king and to that kingdom. But you, you only say, you know, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's your allegiance, right? But then also do it, do your best to live at peace, right? Yeah, yeah. Follow the government that's been placed in front. Like, like you don't have to cause problems, right? right? Like you don't have to get into war with this kingdom as if like the kingdom of God is some kind of physical kingdom in the same way that the rest of our kingdoms are, right? It, it's trans, you know, it's beyond yeah. that the idea. Politics of the kingdom belong, they, they belong to a different structure. Um, yeah, it's submission that um, that undoes the powers. So what is Daniel? Uh, we'll go back to Daniel then, right? Because yeah. because for me, it's, it is very interesting. And there are some Christian traditions in, in America that refuse to say the Pledge of Allegiance, and they they right. won't do those things, right? Because, because of this issue, right? Because, no, no, there's only one person, one being, one God that I actually him allegiant to, and that's God and the person of Christ and the Holy Spirit, right? So what does Daniel have to say for us that are stuck in this situation, <laughs> right? Yeah. Of, of yes, there is the worshiping at the altar of 
the flag or whatever it might be. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm saying that very, you know, that's a very aggrandized way of saying it, right? Maybe lobbing another unneeded grenade into the situation. But what does Daniel tell us? Like, how do we live in empire where our allegiance, really, there's only one allegiance, but we're demanded to have allegiance, something else. Yeah. Um, Wisdom. And wisdom is not straightforward. It's not formulaic. Oh, yeah, that was really easy. Thanks for that answer. <laughs> yep, you're welcome. Yeah. Uh, it's like a good Facebook status. It's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, um, so Daniel 3, which is the, um, the image that is set up on the plane. And when the music begins, everyone is to bow down and worship, right? The music begins playing the anthem. And everyone is to do the specific bodily motion in honor of the image of the empire. Hmm. And if you don't, uh, it, it becomes punishable by death. Thankfully, that's not the case here, though there have been other nations in the history of the world, not too far distant, that did demand such public demonstrations, otherwise imprisonment. Right. Um, so I think, okay, so Daniel's three friends they refuse that right well we're left wondering where's daniel that we don't know i've never thought of this before where was daniel bizarre where in the world is daniel and he you know the character dan does isn't addressed at all i want Hmm. daniel to be there also standing with them and then maybe he's the fourth one who joins them in the fire no okay you know (laughs) make that passage a lot easier right yeah yeah so we find other ways maybe daniel's off on business or you know maybe it was a very localized um expression and representations were there you know of the different peoples um whatever it is daniel's not there that's problematic but to problematize the whole thing you go back just two chapters this is chapter three you go back to chapter one. In chapter one, we have these four young guys who belong somehow to the elite families of Judah who have been mm-hmm. brought into captivity to Babylon. Um, their names represent their commitment, their faithfulness to Yahweh. Whether they were or not, you know, a name doesn't exactly reveal that. Right. But Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, and Daniel, right? They, they, they carry in their names forms of Yahweh, his name. Mm-hmm. And his faithfulness, his goodness, right? His his character. Um, God as judge, and you know, anyways. Um, so that their names somehow reflect their religious identity, as names do. Right. right. Uh, and we, we don't think that as much in in US culture. But for instance, in Latino culture, the names drawing from scripture, biblical names, reflect Catholic religious practice and belief yeah islam you know uh, arab names reflect islamic faith and oftentimes christians in islamic cultures may in fact have a christian name and even folks i mean that, that's where the tradition of a christian name comes from right um right. so okay i'll, I'll have to say they're given new names as if new identities that belong to the empire names that honor the gods of empire yeah. In fact, names that we basically only remember them by. Yeah. I love to ask folks, like, what are the names of the three friends of Daniel? And folks will stumble at it, but they'll usually come up with Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And then I think, shame on us. We, in fact, reinforce the imperial edict over them to hmm. re-identify them as members of the Babylonian Empire. Yeah. We don't even remember their Judaic history. 
their worship of Yahweh, right? Yeah. Um, so, so that, that's one of the elements right and there in chapter can, one, changing the names. Yeah, go ahead. And I'll, I'll throw in there just, and this is just for, for listeners of the podcast. Actually in season one, um, I did a podcast with, uh, Reverend Gabriel Saguero, and I always mess up his last name, but I think it's like the third episode or something. He talks at length about this. Um, oh, the changing names. Yes. And about, and about this kind of like how that is a way of stripping people from their cultural identity and, and their, and their religious identity when we change names. And then it is, he, he even kind of blames us as the church to say, yes, when we are using those names, we are, we're doing the same thing. We're, we're actually not recognizing people as people are, but that's just a, if you're interested, go back to that one, but I didn't mean to interrupt yeah. you, but I just thought that was a good point. Yeah, uh, our Daniel Carroll has done a fair bit of work on this. Um, he's a Latino scholar. Um, I forget where he's where he's currently teaching at. Anyways, um, uh, he's done some fantastic work on immigration hmm. and the ways yeah. in which you know folks who come from another culture sometimes your name is changed just because your receiving culture that you find yourselves in exile among can't pronounce your name or refuse to say your name or to learn it. So they give you some Americanized name or some easier to pronounce name. It's a little known fact about me, but my last name was changed. I mean, not mine mm. personally, but in my family, um, being Italian, my great grandfather or something, I don't remember which one, um, last name was Dorsa. But because of racism, especially amongst Italians at the time, uh, when he came over, they they basically, from the family stories of what I'm told, they basically said, you're never going to find a job with that name, and you're going to have a hard time living here. So we're changing it from Dorsa to Ross, yeah, which is a yes. very American, blase fair. You type in Ross, and there's a bajillion of us, right? Like, it's next to Smith in the book, right? Yeah, it, it this is one of those things that happens regularly as folks uh, are oftentimes maybe forced immigration. Because if you're wealthy or powerful, you don't have to change it. It's mm. usually for the poor or those who are fleeing, right? Um, those who find themselves captives or something like that. They're given new names. Um, you, you even think of the renaming of the slaves that were brought um, to the colonies in, in yeah. the West, uh, North and South America. They were given new names. The African names were totally deleted. Mm. Um, so anyway, so that, that's one of the elements in chapter one. Another one of the elements in chapter one is they're given new clothes. And actually, that, that doesn't appear until the fiery furnace. It's referenced to various clothing articles that they have. Yeah, we don't tend we don't tend to think of the clothing, but yeah. clothing is mandated by the Lord in the Torah, right? So you're not supposed to have mixed fabrics, for example. Yeah, uh, right. you're also you're also you required be stoned, to have right. <laughs> yeah, you're also required to have the tzitzit, the the tassels, the four tassels at the corners of your garments. Yeah. Um, well, those would be disallowed by the Babylonian dress that they're given. So they're they're even forced to conform to religious clothing that would represent them as the wise men of Babylon, and not as faithful Jews. Which which again is fascinating. I mean, connecting that story to the story of David and King Saul, and t and you know cutting off one of the tassels, right? Like it's it's deeper than just like I, I hate that story where people are like, aha, David could have killed him. Well, well, duh. Yeah. <laughs> you would have known that it has something else, right? It, yeah. It means it's a, it's a testimony of God, faithfulness. Right? Yeah. yeah. The, the tassels represent, I belong to Yahweh, the God right. of Israel, and I am one of his people. So that's rejected. So even their clothing that is commanded. Uh, 
further, they get to go to Hogwarts Academy. They get three years of Hogwarts Academy. And apparently they are the aces. Like they are the A++ wizards of the Academy. Um, it says Nebuchadnezzar tests them at the end of the three years. And he finds them to be 10 times better than all of his other folks. Huh. Uh, in fact, we're actually told what it is that they study, their curriculum. It kind of makes me think of uh, Bible colleges, you know, where it's, it's <laughs> basically your religious texts and so forth. Yeah. Um, religious practices. But they learn the language of Babylon. They learn so so that you can read and speak these things and study these things. Right. Um, and, and language really does matter. Again, this is one of those issues that we find in a global environment where there's uh, suppression and even oppression of certain uh, linguistic families yeah. that don't enjoy strength, power, wealth. Um, but then you think, okay, so the kinds of things they had to learn, uh, for instance, they would have studied the texts of um, Marduk and his victory huh. over the goddess Tiamat splitting her in, in two and driving the one to become the sea and the other to become the clouds above. Right? Huh. They, they would have learned this. This was one of their texts. They would have learned astrology um, so that you could predict what it was the gods were showing through the stars. They would have learned things like cutting organs of animals and seeing how the halves let hextapacy. Um, they, they would have learned these sorts of arts as part of the divining of the divine will, right? And they aced it. Yeah, so, so it's much not for just like it's not just like knowledge, right? It's not just like <laughs> you not know just math knowledge. or science or these whatever. These guys it's, were yeah. the best of wizards, so they were professional dream interpreters. They were they were experts at uh, speaking to, hearing from, discerning the gods, knowing the texts about the histories of the gods. Huh. You know, they memorized the hymns to the gods. Um, you, you just think they they learn uh, the, the story of Utnapishtim, the Babylonian Noah, who gets rescued by the god by one of the gods who's wise enough to know we shouldn't kill all the people because someone's going to have to feed us after we kill all these folks with <laughs> <Yeah>. flood. Right? <laughs> they learn these counter narratives right. that speak of identity and they ace it. They don't say, well, we reject your public education for our homeschooling. No, sorry. That's, <laughs> I know I'm not getting. I'm just going to get in trouble on this podcast. That's all right. I mean, no As one someone listens who was anyways. Rick, you're fine. You know, I, I was public schooled, private schooled, homeschooled. I just find sometimes we're we're so afraid, and so I'm thinking, okay, here's these four young guys who receive this education and they ace it. They're yeah. wearing the clothes of Babylon. They're speaking the language of Babylon. They're named after the gods of Babylon. And of course, we know in chapter one, they, they refuse one thing, one identity marker, eating the meat from mm. the king's table, right? Eating the meat, drinking his wine. And so then we get at this weird, like, okay, well, it was because of uh, the kashrut, the food laws, right? Is it kosher or not? And they're trying to be faithful. Are they? Yeah. Because it, it, or we, we'll... We, we may say something even like, well, you know, the meat would have been dedicated to the gods, the wine would have de been dedicated to the gods, and it was. But as we also know, all of the vegetables, all of the grains, right. everything produced belonged to the gods and was dedicated to the gods. Yeah. So, so why are they choosing this? Well, the test is, is actually where we find out why they're choosing this. Right. And I don't know what, what, uh, what you know about 
how do they look after their testing of eating? All I remember is better. I mean, that was my Sunday school, right? They just look stronger, healthier, whatever, right? Okay, stronger, healthier. Lots of our contemporary English translations will say something like that. Stronger, healthier, better. Yeah. What is better? Well, in a Western ideal, better means, you know, like maybe I'm shaped like a triangle, right? I got like, I'm ripped and like, I'm getting thin and I got like a six pack showing, man. Never well, been okay. my problem. Yeah, no, I've not <laughs> had that problem. I got, I got plenty of anointing oil in the middle. So, you know, <laughs> like what, what does better mean? Well, literally it reads, they got fatter. Ah, yeah. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, about that makes you, a lot of sense to me, yeah. especially in that kind of like culture of yeah. scarcity but imagine, or whatever. What if you cut out all meats and the, the wines and all you ate was vegetables and drank water? Are you going to gain weight or lose weight? Are you going to get fatter or are you going to get thinner? You're going to get thinner. You're going to get gaunt. And it's going to be obvious you're weak, you're tired, you're okay. I like I like the the, the Daniel fast yeah. right now. If it's really just eat meat, drink wine, and you'll get skinny, like I'm in. Like let's do yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like so th- that's the beauty of it is they eat these vegetables, drink this water, and they get bigger. They bulk mm. up. Yeah, which is just to show that the God of Israel has not abandoned them. Hmm. Empire does not determine our health or our standing. Right. It does not determine how we will live and how we will be blessed. And even in the midst of empire, they can choose this to show that their God, their God, grants health and favor to his people, even in far off Babylon, where he shouldn't have power because gods are, you know, I I heard this uh, recently. Um, If we think of gods almost like Wi-Fi routers, (laughs) the further you get from them, the less power they have. Yeah. Uh, But they're all like localized. So if you move far enough away, they shouldn't have any power. Right. Well, Yahweh shouldn't have any power in far off Babylon, but he does. So I guess the question is a question really from silence. And if we're talking yep. about their name changes, their clothing change, their, their, you know, practicing of kind of, to some degree, you have to practice the, the religious occult, right? To be trained right. in it, yes. to be good. Why all of a sudden the food? Why? Yeah. Why food? Why the then, image? Yeah, and then why the image, right? Because those are the two kind of points of resistance that they actually give. And even the food isn't really that much a point of resistance because all food is sacrificed to the gods. Right. Or at least the biggest the biggest point of resistance is that, you know, folks could get killed for this. Their supervisor is really terrified because if these guys look bad, his job is to make sure that they all look good and they look the part. Right. They're well taken care of. So they, they are risking their lives in this. Um, Because they could also be in trouble for for this rejection. Yeah. And for me, it comes down to, again, this discernment, this wisdom. It's not Mm. about a rule. It's not about, well, I'm never going to. It is somehow in the midst of empire. When do you subvert empire and when do you submit and through submission subvert? Hmm. Yeah. So I find that to be the case in our American context. Are there times to more openly subvert and maybe not in ways we should imagine? Are there times to simply submit and somehow even in the forms of our submission, we subvert? Right. America's a good place, man. It's still a really good place to be. Um, But I I think of this in our context. I think of this in my many brothers and sisters scattered around the planet in uh, 
gospel-y creative access countries yeah um where they still look the part of local folks they still speak the language right right um, and uh you know all of us ought to find ourselves that as those in exile all of us those who are so- sojourners foreigners not from around here but somehow we also fit in yeah we also don't fit in it's kind of a jesus way if you think about it yeah <laughs> and and it's and it's inherently messy right like yeah because in all of the in all of the subversions they they would have been killed right don't take your new name you're going to die because that means you're resisting your exile in the empire right don't mm-hmm. change your clothes well you're going to die because you're again resisting the exile you know so in all the ways their life was on the line mm-hmm. but whatever this wisdom was for these two specific areas there must have been a reason even if that reason we don't fully understand or get there's right. a reason why in their wisdom these two are the areas of subversion yeah right yeah. um and one of them is still submitting because one of them is still eating, you know, food <laughs> offered to the idols or, you know, dedicated to the idols of the gods. Um, so it's like almost like a mini test, right? Like it's yeah. a mini subversion. That That's, I like that, but I, I can already kind of tell the resistance that people have. Well, that's just clear as mud, right? So <laughs> if we try to bring that to what does it mean to be... Yeah. Allegiant to God, a follower of Christ, in a space in which you are supposed to proclaim Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, not the president, not the king, not the whatever type of leader you have in whatever country. There's only one proclamation, and that proclamation is Jesus is Lord. (laughs) When do you submit and when do you subvert? Yeah, well, you know, Paul, Paul appeals to Caesar. He wouldn't do that. If not for the fact, if not for the fact that he believes the accusations of him outright subverting Caesar will not hold up in court. Yeah. Even as he continues faithfully to persist in Jesus is Lord. Yeah. Somehow he realizes, yeah, this is, uh, he is submitting enough that there's, there's no real accusation of the empire against him. It's got to be false accusations. So his subversion is sufficiently subtle and crafty, which is another word for wise, that it's able to undo things without directly undoing things. Hmm. I mean, this is Daniel interpreting dreams. Right. Well, he gives interpretations of dreams, for instance, Daniel 2, which is uh, Nebuchadnezzar dreaming about an image head of gold and midsection of silver and then the legs of bronze feet of iron clay which is funny that it's placed right before the chapter where nebuchadnezzar builds an image Uh, but he's he's undoing empire by pointing to the rock that is cast at empires as glorious as they are crafted by man the head of gold and the chest of silver and the legs of bronze and the feet of iron and clay that these will all be crushed by that rock so it's he's able to actually say your kingdom nebuchadnezzar is going to end but do it in such a way that he's never removed from power Hmm. in fact he remains in his place of power in the house of nebuchadnezzar he receives a greater exaltation in what he's able to do so that somehow he he both serves and subverts simultaneously and to me this is this is the craftiness the wisdom 
of of those who are wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Yeah, and and I and I I know I go back to Paul again in Romans, but but it's just because so much of it has been misunderstood, right? I mean, every every person who wants to proclaim that their political leaders in power is going to use Romans thirteen to say you should submit to the authority above <laughs> you, right? Like every. And then, of course, it's someone else's in power. No, that's not my president or that's not my, you know what I mean? Like whatever the whatever the proclamation is, you know, we use it when it works. But that's what I think is very interesting about Paul is because he says that not too long after he literally does say, you don't proclaim Caesar as Lord. Like mm-hmm. that, that's just it. You don't. Jesus, there's only one Lord and it's Jesus. But do your best for whatever it means to live at peace with these people as as best as you can right live at right. peace amongst those around you don't don't cause right. them problems don't cause them which which is interesting right we we think about that all the time i mean jeremiah in jeremiah 29 right this really terribly used passage all the time that you know god's gonna have plans for you to prosper you and you're gonna have a great life because jeremiah 29 11 where in reality you know, there's this, you're in exile for 40 years, you're going to live in a place that you don't want to live. Mm-hmm. And yet, do your best with those people where you are, right? Like, don't cause them problems, grow, mm-hmm. plant roots, settle down, you know, do your best yeah. where you can. And sometime in the future, I'm going to bring you back to the land that you that is yours. But most of you are going to be dead because, you know, 40 years is a long time in that time. And most of you are dead, <laughs> right? Like, so your kids yeah. and maybe your grandkids will get to go back, but you, you aren't. So settle down, you know, live at peace. Yeah. Right. Which is, it's, I, I it's, it's, and to me, it's just like, like what you're saying. It's this idea of wisdom of, it is this paradox of being able to proclaim Jesus as Lord and still being able to say, but America's my country, mm-hmm. right? Like it is, right. it is my place. I don't deny it. I don't hate it. I don't want to subvert. I'm, it is where I live, and I'm very thankful to live here. I'm going to pay right. my taxes, and I'm going to follow the laws, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No big deal, right? So, but somehow, when it comes to this phrase of who is Lord, yeah, we have to we have to be very careful that we don't replace Lord with empire. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think for the most part, we're we're mostly not going to outright say that there are folks who will, but most of us won't. Um, the bigger issue is uh, what's our visceral, what's our gut reactions to things that will often reveal where our heart really is. Yeah. Rather than the words that we speak. Right. Um, I was just thinking, too. Uh, so you think Daniel six, Daniel six is um, where he suddenly finds himself a new empire. You'd think a change of governments, change of empire should be a really good thing. And it is for some folks. It's under that new empire that the edict goes out to go home, rebuild yeah. the temple to Yahweh, resettle the land and so forth. Even the, the descendant of David gets appointed as a governor over this, this province, uh, yeah. Yehuda province. But Daniel finds himself just in a new court, serving a new <laughs> empire. Right. Like, really, dude? Really? Right. And, and then Shadrach, and, Meshach, and Abednego, which I used their wrong names again. Yeah. Right? Are just gone. They're, they're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're gone. done they're, from they're the, story, the story, right? We like, don't know. Yeah. Daniel again. himself, theoretically, uh, following the age, he's likely, uh, if, I mean, the, this character, he's likely 90 by this point. 
picture. I mean, the dude is stinking old. Yeah. Uh, okay, so he's 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 not going home, and he just knows it. But the, there's this plot hash because he doesn't play the games of other folks, the financial mismanagement, playing loose with stuff. Um, and so they, they hatch a plot to get him in trouble, to get him removed. And the plot is convince the emperor to only allow prayer for one month to the emperor. Hmm. Note that the text never says Daniel does not pray to the emperor. In fact, we would have to presume Daniel joins with everybody else when they greet the emperor with some sort of prayers as some sort of office a state office something like this what daniel does that the folks know will get him in trouble is not that he'll say i'm never going to pray to the emperor that's you know i'm going to make my stand right here you've you've just gone too far no daniel is committed to pray to his god and he does it in such a way that he opens his window to pray facing towards jerusalem where there's not yet a rebuilt temple, where there's just a small, a small gathering of folks who are going back. And he asked that Yahweh would have mercy. And we, we read his prayer later in, in chapter nine, the kinds of prayers that he prays of repentance and all this towards that place. What gets him in trouble is not resisting praying to the emperor. Yeah. What gets him in trouble is also praying to Yahweh. And I think it's very important that you, that you've actually pointed that out because whether it's Sunday school teachings of it or, you know, preachings of it, you, you don't hear that, right? Because it's just assumed, right? This is one of those things that we do. We fill in the blanks with some kind of assumption, which which that assumption is, well, because he's praying Yahweh and he's a monotheist and because he clearly doesn't, he clearly doesn't pray to the emperor, right? Right. And it's, and it's such a, an argument from our, you know, 21st century 20th century kind of eyes right like we don't yeah. want him to pray to because then then it becomes complicated then what do we yeah. do with this figure of daniel who doesn't get in trouble for praying to the emperor but he does get in trouble for praying to yahweh right yeah like, yeah does that not make sense like i, I mean yep it would have been super easy for them to come up with the plot that we know he's not going to pray to the emperor so therefore He's going to be in trouble the moment that we make this. Well, that's not the issue, right? The issue is he's going to pray to his God. Whatever yeah. we require, he's going to pray to his God. And he's going to do it in such a way that it will be clearly visible. <laughs> and you know, again, because I'm, you know, me, Paul, New Testament, that all that stuff, right? Like it, it just, the crossover to some of the things like for Paul with this idea of eating meat sacrificed to idols you know, it, it's such an interesting progression in the New Testament, particularly with Paul, because, you know, Jews, of course, they're not going to eat meat sacrificed mm -hmm. idols. That's not a thing. Paul's going to the Gentiles, the spirits falling on the Gentiles, where he's preaching and where they're building communities. So in Acts 15, we get this register of, hey, the Torah is really hard. Don't worry <laughs> about following pretty much any of it, except for uh, you know, stay away from sexual uh, sexual morality. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, and don't eat meat with blood in it. Which those two are just cultic worships, right? Like right, it's right. worship of another god. And so Paul's fine with this, right? Presumably, Paul doesn't push back and acts and say, "Wait a second, that's going to make it really hard." He's like, "Okay, fine." And the letters go out, and 
and then what happens right later on paul's <laughs> like hey if it's sacrificed to an idol who cares <laughs> like what does it matter to you if it's sacrificed you're not actually worshiping that god and you know that so why mm-hmm. are you putting up this resistance and then also presumably not eating meat presumably suffering in some way because that's all the meat you're going to get in market is right. sacrificed or you know given over to the gods but you know just worship yahweh and eat your meat right and and then he gives the side you know unless it causes someone else to stumble which is not like a vegan vegetarian stumble right <laughs> right a, yeah it's a oh apparently you can worship god and worship the yeah. other gods that's fine and you know i just think it's it's that kind of wisdom that, that deal, in dealing with empire that's lost in such strictures that say you have to do this and you can't do that and there's no wisdom there's no wisdom or, or interplay between you know what do you do when everyone else is standing up and saying the pledge of allegiance right daniel's a marvelous book too that um he gets noted even by uh, by by these kings as having the spirit of the gods in him um, huh. he is known to be one who is inspirited um, whatever they think of that Whatever they think of that, they know somehow he has divine insight and understanding beyond what, beyond what the success at their their uh, Hogwarts Academy gave him. Because all the rest of the folks, all the rest of the folks who graduated, well, some sinners told me about the uh, the books and the movies. I'm just <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, we watch them every Christmas. It's like our, uh, yeah, there you me go. and my wife's that's, like that's family tradition, tradition now. So, yeah, perfect timing for it. Yeah. But I think that that's also why, why do we have this collection of tales? Um, they're court tales. So they get right at the heart of empire. Yeah. They're, they're right there yeah. in the seat of power. Because um, you could have peripheral stories of people in some far off village or what have you. And we have other texts uh, among the exiles. For instance, the book of Ezekiel. Um, he's off by the river Chabar. And he, he's not at the seat of power. But meanwhile, right. Daniel literally is in the very heart of empire there is no do i worship or not do i yeah. join with the throng uh that enters the king and pledges their lives to the king right to their being to the gods that bow before the gods as they enter the houses of the gods and you know babylon is full of temples and right. even entering you know the, we have this annual enthronement of the king that seems to happen um, where Marduk is praised as this chief deity. He has to be a part of these uh, these events of state. So it's, it's than, troubling. Yeah, other than those first couple of chapters where he's just disappeared, yeah. right? Or yeah, either that or he's just following along the same practices and he's not, you know, I mean, I guess his name doesn't get changed, so at least not. It does. Belteshazzar. Oh, right. And yeah. he gets called that a little bit later on um but we don't we don't tend to remember his name no um which which i think is another way that the text is sort of subverting us in its Hmm. own way the ways that we think about empire that the identity of those other three we remember in their babylonian form daniel we remember in this hebrew form and it's a way of us sort of connecting the two that we never dismiss them yeah ah it's fascinating you know, it's 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 particularly fascinating. You know, definitely, this was not the way the conversation was was planned. Of course, there was no plan, but yeah, this was definitely yeah. not it. Whatever it was, <laughs> but it's 
it's fascinating, you know, just just your idea here that like growing up Pentecostal, Pentecostal, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, you know, Daniel. So often, all Daniel was read was on some kind of feats of the work of God, right? Like mm-hmm. so, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, they're in the fire. They're okay because this fourth person appears, and that must be pre-incarnate Jesus who's now walking with them, right? And then, of yeah. course, Daniel in the lion's den because he prays. So we, we talk about the miracles, and then we talk about the apocalyptic, eschatological, how many days until, you know, you know, are we going to be in tribulation, right? But we don't really ever read it as empire. We don't really mm-hmm. ever, at least Pentecostal traditions, have typically not struggled with what is this dealing with empire in Daniel that tells us something about where we are. Right. Right. And I don't know if that's just a product of always looking for the miracle or if it was, yeah. you know what I mean? I don't know what the product was, but to yeah. me, it's such a, you know, you've enlightened me in so many ways to say, now I want to go back, read it so many times, but go back and read it again yet and think, well, let's put the miracles aside for a second and actually understand them in light of their empire yeah, and what the text is trying to tell us through the stories. Yeah. I mean, th- this is a God who allows, so he's subverting, um, he's subverting his own people, Judah, who've imagined themselves and the temple of Yahweh to be inviolable by allowing his house, his favorite bowl, his favorite cup to be looted and taken to the house of the gods of Babylon. That's right away in the first couple of verses of Daniel. Right. So he's subverting their idea of empire. Hmm. the the empire that they saw through the sons of david and the house of yahweh and zion embodied um and he's he's subverting that yeah and yet he's also subverting empire by sending his favorite i always think of it as like his favorite breakfast bowl and his favorite coffee mug uh, end (laughs) up in the house in the house of the gods of babylon where i mean it plays out in chapter five with Belshazzar who brings out the Lord's favorite bowl and his favorite cup and he's using them for his party. Right. But he, he allows his own treasure, his people to go off into exile as a way of subverting empire of both blessing empire. Yeah. And undoing empire for the sake of the world. Yeah. And I, I just see that, that gospel thread all throughout the entire book. Yeah, and it and it brings me back to to Amos, and I know mm-hmm. we've talked about a bit about Amos, but you know, just the the funny way that that Amos goes around and he points out all the flaws of these surrounding countries and how they've been so bad and how they how they don't follow the in, in so many ways they don't follow the laws of Torah how they deal with their slaves or treatment of women and and all these t- terrible things and I love the beginning of it because you you read it and you're like oh well. He's just pointing the finger at all the other guys. And of course, that last one is pointing the finger at Israel and saying, mm-hmm. you're the worst, right? <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Like you're actually showed, the ones in trouble. Yeah. I've just showed all these bad things, but you guys are the worst. Yeah. In so many ways, you know better, but you also are acting worse than all of them. Yeah. Right. Like, I actually chose you. Right. So <laughs> you I, I love, I love what you're saying because that subversion, like, again, it's so easy for us to get into that mindset that the subversion of especially Old Testament text, we always read ourselves as the good guy, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the not, not the person being subverted, right? Like whether we we read our, ourselves into the good parts of the story of Israel 
or whatever it is, we very rarely allow ourselves to be that which is being subverted or mm. that which God is speaking out against or because that would be hard, right? Right. No one wants to be told you're the worst, <laughs> a bunch <laughs> of them, right? But I love that kind of bringing that up, especially in Daniel, because it just kind of points back again that a good faithful reading of the Old Testament doesn't put ourselves as the character of Daniel, but oftentimes put ourselves as the people of empire. And yeah. and how have we been subverted and how are we subverting, right? Yeah. And we're, we're left wondering at the end of the book, will we be counted among the wise who will rise from the dust of the earth to receive our reward and shine as the stars of the heavens? Yeah. <laughs> and the, the fact that it uses the word wise there, mm -hmm. right? Like, again, I think kind of to your point again, this like biblical wisdom is often different than we think of. Because I think of wise, right? Like, how do you be wise in light of empire? Well, just completely resist everything that doesn't, <laughs> right? Like, that's wise, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But that's clearly not what what this is talking about because I I don't think we would count Daniel and his friends as unwise. In fact, I think we would count them as very wise, right? Well, thank you for that grenade. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it ended up being a lot more like a very large bomb than a grenade, but I liked it and I'm okay. there for it. Yeah. But I do, I do actually want to get to this other passage, right? Yeah, uh, yes. That, if you have time, yes, um, absolutely. And I and I said that kind of thing up front about for whatever reason calling you ye old bald head like <laughs> early on in our friendship. Um, but that passage is that passage. You know, to remind listeners if if they don't remember, right? Elisha's walking down and. Some some youths make fun of him about being bald, calling him a bald head, and here comes a mama bear who <laughs> strikes them all down and kills them all, right? Yeah. Like, even as a kid, I always was like, what is the point of this story? Am I not supposed to call people <laughs> bald? Like, <laughs> well, you probably shouldn't, but... Yeah, but, uh, you know, yeah. there's been no bears yet, so... Yeah, <laughs> you know? yet. Just yet, right? Okay, well, thank you for that. <laughs> proclamation over my life but, <laughs> yeah uh, but but even as a kid I I, I, I was just like what's the point of this right yeah. like how do we hear a weird text like this yeah, what are we supposed it, to do with it is it just again like oh he was holy and and God mm -hmm. took care of him you know what I mean like no. so I'm I'm throwing <laughs> that as my own question and yeah. and listeners are quickly learning that you know regardless of if if I'm this much near to being done with the PhD and the theology is theology old testament is yeah. old testament right like i've read a lot of commentaries i've read a lot of on different parts of the old testament but it's freaking huge <laughs> yeah there's a lot to it there's so much to know there's no right. end of learning as as the teacher says right so uh, now i've said i've said my piece rick yeah. teach me again how what do we do with this passage yeah. what is it trying to do second kings 2 23 through 25 short little tale following the catching up of Elijah in the whirlwind, right? Elisha right. Uh, was to be given a sign. If he could get the double portion spirit of Elijah, which is also ambiguous, is it the spirit of Yahweh or the spirit of Elijah? Mm, yeah. My answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> the no, the sign, guess. though, that he gets it is the hairy cloak that Elijah is known by will fall back, right? Uh, basically, Elisha will get it. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens. 
So it's with that cloak that Elisha will strike the waters of the Jordan and cross them on dry ground as he had followed Elijah across on dry ground in full witness of sons of the prophets right? who now see this double portioned son of the prophet wearing the cloak of their father, Elijah. And the words even Elisha had cried as he saw Elijah caught up, my father, my father. Yeah. Um, uh, concerning Elijah. Now he wears the cloak of the father. He becomes, as it were, the eldest son, which is the double portion son. Hmm. The double portion son, according to Deuteronomy, is the eldest. They get twice as much as all the rest of the boys. It's not twice as much as the father. That's stupid and an impossibility. <laughs> Despite all of the ordination services I've ever been to that always <laughs> abuse that text. May right. you have twice as much as I have. No, right. you're not getting twice as much. What right. you are getting is the eldest son's portion, who, when the father is gone, will step into the role as the head of the family. Yeah. So here is Elisha, by the way, at his deathbed, the king of Israel at that time, this is later on chapter 13, when he dies, the king will come to him and will call to him, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. The very words he had cried to Elijah, where Elisha has fulfilled his life as a father, for Israel in the place of Elijah. He wears huh. the hairy cloak of Elijah. Okay. Yeah. I say that because, and we know it's a hairy cloak because the second Kings one, a King was sending to find out, will his son survive an accident? And Elijah meets the messenger and says, you know, go back. Is there no God in Israel that you should seek? Uh, but doesn't give his name. The servant right. goes back to the King. The King says, what did he look like? Tell me what this prophet looked like. And his servant says, well, he was wearing this hairy cloak. Huh. And right away he goes, Elijah, I knew it would be him. Right. So that he's known for his hairiness. Okay. I say that because this is all set up. Hmm. Let me just read it here. Uh, and this is the, the new international version, the 1984 version, um, just because that's what I had on hand here. Uh, from there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some youths came out of the town and jeered at him. Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of Yahweh. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. <laughs> then he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. All right. What is Elisha wearing? He's wearing hairy a hairy cloak, cloak right? yeah. by which his father, his father, his prophetic father, that makes him now a father among all of the other prophets, which is also a literary reason why all the rest of the prophets in these texts are called sons of the prophets. Hmm. He is the eldest son, now father of these prophets. Right. He's a father to Israel. All right. They are, and, and most of us say bald head. By the way, head is not there in the Hebrew. It's huh. go up, baldy, go up, baldy. Huh. Elijah had just gone up in the whirlwind. He's taken away. Yeah. It is, a, it is a rejection of him being like Elijah. Ah, Despite that he is hairy, they reject him as if he is bald. You are not like Elijah. Go away. Interesting. Be taken up and carried away like yeah. Elijah was. We actually don't want you here. So it's a dismissal of him carrying the mantle of Elijah and huh. being a father to the prophets. So then you wonder, though, like, the curse youths 
Well, youth is pretty ambiguous. Solomon uses this exact same term when he uh, requests from the Lord for wisdom. He says, I'm just a youth. Well, hmm. he's not just a youth. He's a grown man. Yeah. Um, whatever, whatever this term is, young guys, right? But, okay, 42 get whooped up by a almost, couple of Almost, maybe just put to that youth's word, almost like youth, not particularly as an age, but almost as in, yeah. if someone's like, saying that I'm just, unmarried you know, like, guys almost like I'm, or I'm young I'm, guys. Yeah. Or even I'm, I'm just, dumb, like not dumb. wise. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Exactly. And even though this is a narrative text, so maybe it's less ambiguous. It's still like basically unmarried dudes. Yeah. Which could be in their twenties. Right. Um, so you, you think, okay, so they are rejecting his prophetic mantle, his prophetic anointing. And he calls down a curse as if to show, yeah, he still has it. By the way, if you go back to chapter one, again, just the previous chapter to this, Elijah had called down fire from heaven three times, consuming troops of soldiers sent to right. arrest him. Elisha is actually merciful. He calls down a curse and only two she-bears come out and spank these boys. <laughs> In fact, the language is not even that they get killed. As opposed to chapter one with Elijah, fire consumes them and they're just gone. They're like vaporized, you know, right. it's like Star Trek, like they're just gone. In chapter two, they get mauled, which is a very specific term, just meaning they get beat up. They get clawed, they get smacked. They're not killed. So hmm. the judgment is actually less severe than it had been for Elijah. I don't know, because um, mauling to me sounds yeah. quite deathly. It does, but there are other Hebrew terms that would mean they were killed. In fact, right. there's multiple terms that they were slaughtered, they were killed, they were put to death, and right. they died. It's literally they were mauled. Right. Uh, they get spanked by the mama bears. And 42 hmm. of them, how does that happen? Well, unless you got uh, like superhero bears that fly around really fast, whipping up on all these guys. I'm imagining a big group of these guys thinking they'll make their stand, despite that this is a judgment, a clear judgment from the Lord. Hmm. And they each in turn get beat up because they make their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. And that seems to be what's going on here in this story. It's interesting. Chris Green and I had a conversation once at a SBS um, about kind of the contrast between Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is pretty keen on killing folks. <laughs> Elisha, on the other hand, is not. He shows mercy again and again and again. His his stories are rather fascinating for that. That while he carries the mantle of his father, he's not brutal like his father was. Huh. Um, hmm. Interesting insight. Anyways, so there you go. There's that little tale. But it 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 shows him to be like Elijah, but even better. Right. It's interesting to me, and I think we, we talked about this some our, our last time, you know, what do we do with the violence kind of mm. we find in the Old Testament? And I think this is one of those passages where I still kind of go, yeah, but even mauling, right? Uh, like, yeah. even if it's not death, that's hard to deal with if... It's if, very hard to deal with. If, if this curse is literally God saying, okay, great, here's a couple bears, yeah. and, and they're going to do their thing, right? Like... You know, what do we, even in this story, what do we do with that in relation to Elisha having this, yeah. you know, twice as much maybe as the other sons of prophets, if we use that language yeah. instead? Here's what we do. The, the better prophet, the truer prophet, 
who is indeed endowed with the fullness of the spirit that was on Elijah and Elisha, who, when his own disciples say, why don't we call down fire from heaven to consume these folks? Jesus says, yeah, you're not really being like my folks. You're not of my kingdom mm-hmm. in, in thinking this, right? Um, this, is, this is not what I'm here to do. Right. right. And so I think, um, you know, whether, whether we begin to think uh, with some folks, the, um, the, the crucified hermeneutic or something, cruciformed hermeneutic, um, I, I hear these stories in light of Jesus, who right. actually takes this. Um, he bears the curse of the Lord, as it were, being hung on that tree for the right. sake of the enemies who have who continue to scorn him, reject him. If you really are the son of God, right? Or if you really right. are, in fact, actually, they say, uh, they hear him saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And they say, ah, he's calling for Elijah. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Um, Jesus prays for mercy. Jesus extends grace in those moments instead of yeah. invoking the curse upon them. In, in, in so many ways, right? Like I hear you, right? Yeah. And I'm, and I'm all for cruciform readings in which we try to recognize like in some sense, yes, Elijah does show better the character of Christ, even if that character is still not quite there, right? Like even if it's, it's better than Elijah, he's not out here, you know, smoking people but he he is he still he is, falls short he you know right he's still falling kind of yeah. short and and you know maybe I, and, I, and this is just me still a little unsatisfied mm-hmm. with the but but that curse has to be directed by god or not directed by god but followed up Right, mm-hmm. unless it's right. just sheer coincidence that two she bears are like, "Hey, yeah, <laughs> we're coming out." It's, right? Like, yeah, it's as if the bears respond to the prophetic word of this man who speaks, and now the Lord answers. He actually right. chooses to answer him. Right. Um, and then I think, um, if he chooses to answer his prophets, does he also answer his son? And what does his son actually ask of his father? Right. Right. If he's if he's answered these right. folks. And it's, we would still go, ah, man, it's just, it's not, still not right. It's still not right. It's like, yeah, right. you're getting better. Oh, you're only slightly killing folks. <laughs> right, you know? right. I'm not as bad. Well, right. it, it's, it's as if, again, this, uh, you know, to, to twist a little bit, maybe a phrase of Paul, looking through glasses darkly, right? We don't quite see clearly. Um, we're, we are longing for something more. And the one who asks, man, what he asks, it is granted to him, whatever he asks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, personally, I'll have to chew on that for a little while. Yeah. Um, but I do. So be careful who you it, curse. Yeah. <laughs> well, none of them have come true so far. I must not be at the right Hogwarts school, I think. Uh, <laughs> I oh, man. Know. But but it is it is interesting and, and this is a this is actually you know it's interesting that you bring up the, you know this passage of Jesus saying Father forgive them particularly because it's such a nondescript Father forgive them as in who's the them right like Jesus doesn't say hey those two guys who are casting lots for my clothes <laughs> forgive them yeah. Yeah. no it's it's kind of when he when when all of this has happened he makes this proclamation which which to me is is more powerful than i think sometimes we let it be right and 
this claim, and this is where I, I, I'm going to throw a grenade and then say, Rick, thanks so much for being here, right? <laughs> like this claim of forgiveness seems to be much broader than, than just the few things that are happening there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you read, when we read that passage, it, it is a almost like Christ looking out into the world. Right. And making this proclamation, not just, hey, the guys who put the nails in my hand and the guys beat me and the guys who are casting lots. And but it was almost like this whole world is blind. Yeah. And forgive them. Right. And I say that's a grenade because that's a topic we don't have time to talk about. <laughs> um, it's a Daniel kind of prayer, though. He prays repentance for people who aren't even praying for it for themselves. And there's no indication, of course, that these people take that forgiveness, except yeah. for maybe the thief on his yeah. on his side, right? Like, yeah, there's, it's there's... The, the crazy abounding goodness of a God who forgives even when folks aren't seeking it and are rebellious against that forgiveness. Which is which is part of the reason why I'm I'm taken up by the like I don't know whether we call it scapegoat or mimetic theory about atonement in which really this kind of we focus so much on like something special happening in the crucifixion of Christ yeah. as the shedding of blood as kind of an appeasement towards God like these kind of things that look a bit more at God in kind of an angry father type of way versus a mimetic or scapegoat kind of reality in which what what Jesus is actually doing is breaking a whole cycle of violence mm-hmm. you hurt me I hurt you back an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth right? Like these things, the cycle of violence, even when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he goes a step further than turning the other cheek and actually just says, forgive them, right? Like I don't need to pour violence back out on them. Rather, I can give them forgiveness, which is probably the most beautiful thing about Christ we can think about, but it's often one that is kind of missed because we look at that passage as more of like, oh me, the blood for me, not, hey, we're breaking some, some violence here, right? Like showing you how the world should work, mm-hmm. not how it has. But that's a, like I said, topic for another day, maybe. <laughs> maybe we'll get into fun atonement theories later on and lob some more grenades. Yeah. Rick, appreciate you, man. You too. Thank you for, for very much enlightening me, you know, <laughs> making me see things again, make putting putting things in my head to ponder, Hopefully for our listeners, um, aside from all of our random uh, side trails that we went on, uh, enjoyed it as well and it kind of gives more things to listen or or to think about. Um, But I will ask this question because I I like to ask it, you know, what what are you working on? What What are ways people can follow some of your work, especially these things now that we're talking about? I know you pretty much presented every SBS, but what are some ways people can connect with you? However, however that is. Yeah, of course they can, um, they can track my, my website, wadholm.com, W-A-D-H-O-L-M.com, which needs to be more regularly updated. There are some parts of it that I keep updated. um, uh, The blogging part, less so, uh, but there's a lot of resources there. Um, yeah, of course, social media. I'm all over the place. <laughs> um, try and try and stay active as much as possible in positive ways. Uh, yeah, 
I, I've got a number of projects uh, uh, in the in the pipeline. I realized the other day, I think I've got 10 books at various stages right now. Oh my gosh. Um, so we're, we're going to try and get some of those to the finish line in 2023. Um, I'm actually headed this week to Denver to present a paper. I've still got to finish writing um, on um, the, the prophetic in 1st, 2nd Samuel and why I think it's not... Um, it's not crazy madman, um, raving lunatic prophesying by Saul, for example. Huh. So, um, but why, why maybe Pentecostals? And I'm uh, speaking on this at the Institute for Biblical Research, one of their sessions, yeah, on Friday. So, I'd be interested to know what my supervisor for my PhD will think about your paper if he ever reads it, since his dissertation was all on prophetic. In Old yeah. Testament, but I think Ezekiel or Isaiah, I don't remember. Yeah. I could be wrong. You probably know better than I do, actually, uh, which is not a good <laughs> thing to say. <laughs> He's my supervisor. Yeah. But, Rick, um, good luck, man. Thank you for doing this, even though you've got a paper to finish writing. Um, <laughs> got a couple days. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's well, mostly written. I will, I will miss you. I will not be going to ARSBL, but maybe next year. Um, yeah. I just got home from literally two separate trips on Sunday. <laughs> I'll buy some extra books in your honor. Yeah, well, if you're going to buy them in my honor, you might as well ship them <laughs> to my house. I know. We'll take that. Yeah. All right, my friend. We will chat soon. All right, God bless you.